the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. How long have those who have committed crimes, how long should they have to pay for what they've done? And are there some crimes that are just so heinous that they should prevent offenders from certain jobs or opportunities in the future? A recent controversy at the Michigan Supreme Court raises all of those questions and more about criminal justice in our state and in our country. We'll tackle them all next on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us today. In the past few decades, there's been a lot of conversation, especially in public policy circles, about the need to reform our criminal justice system. This country puts too many people into prison, too many of those who are incarcerated are black or brown, and all of it costs in dollars and human suffering more than any nation should be prepared to spend. And by and large, there's been a lot of movement on these issues over that time toward the ideals of a society that punishes less harshly and in a less biased way. But for a long time, I've believed that the hardest part of this conversation about reform is actually not about who should go to prison and who shouldn't. It's actually about what should happen to those who have been to prison once they return to society. How long should those who commit crimes have to pay for what they've done? And are there some crimes that we believe are just so heinous that they should prevent offenders from certain jobs or opportunities in the future? Are there things that people do that should prevent them from building a full life on the other side of a prison sentence? These questions came up recently when Michigan Supreme Court Justice Richard Bernstein criticized his new colleague, Justice Kyra Harris-Bolden, for hiring a clerk who had been incarcerated. That clerk, Pete Martell, had served 14 years in prison after robbing a Flint area store and shooting at police officers during the crime. Once Bernstein made his criticism public, Martell resigned from the position. And Bernstein has since apologized for his comments about Bolden's hiring decision. And the whole thing maybe is moving into the rear view mirror. But I want to take a hard look into that mirror. Because some of the things that Bernstein said raise a lot of questions about the way we think about people who have been incarcerated. Why do we as Americans have such a hard time accepting someone back into their communities as full citizens after they've paid their debt to society? We make it enormously hard for returning citizens to get jobs, acquire housing, and even live with their family members or friends in some cases. Their lives remain under heavy surveillance for quite some time. And there are all kinds of things that they are prevented from doing, either by policy or by practice. Don't we believe in rehabilitation? Do we believe in redemption? Why do we call it the Department of Corrections? if we don't believe that the people who are in the custody of DOC and then come out are, in some ways, corrected. 
We've had a lot of conversation here on the staff at Detroit Today about this this week, and it has produced this show. We want to talk today about what's enough. How much is enough to pay for mistakes you've made in your past? And can we really reform the criminal justice system without dealing with that end of it? Not the front end, but the back end, which some people deal with their entire lives. We're going to explore all of these questions, and we're going to start by exploring why we punish people in the first place. What is the goal of that in America? And then later, we're going to talk with two formerly incarcerated individuals about what life is like for returning citizens, whether redemption is possible in this country, and if not, what it could look like. To start, we have Zachary Hoskins. He's an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Nottingham in England, and he's written a lot about what it means to punish. Professor Hoskins, welcome to Detroit Today. Great. Thanks for having me on, Stephen. So let's start with that initial question. Why do we punish people as societies? Uh, and why is there such a drive among us as humans to want to punish other people? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And, and I think in general, there are, um, I, th- I think we find generally four reasons four types of reasons why people give for why we punish. And I, I think you find this not only from, you know, academics like me who write about punishment, but also from in in judges sentencing decisions. Um, but also I think just the public generally, you find these these generally these four reasons. And and so the first one is um, deterrence. So there the idea is that the state hopes that the prospect of paying a fine or spending time in jail or prison will persuade people not to commit crimes or or will persuade people who uh, have already committed crimes and been punished not to reoffend. And, and the thought is, you know, those are bad. Those are unpleasant things. And so the state hopes that the prospect, the threat of, of having to spend time in jail or prison or pay a fine or, or some type of punishment will persuade people not to commit crime. And there the, the sort of the, the overall idea is to try to reduce crime that way. Um, a second reason that we we hear sometimes is is incapacitation. So there, the idea is that by locking people in jail or in prison, essentially the state removes people from the community, um, so they can't be a danger to commit crimes in the community. So there, the the thought is not we give people a reason not to commit crimes, but it's just we just take away the opportunity for people to commit crimes um, if you're not. You know, it's it's getting people off the streets, so to speak. You hear that phrase. Um, a third reason is, as you mentioned, you talked a little bit about um, rehabilitation or or reform, and and there the idea is, the hope would be that punishment would help to um, persuade people not to commit crimes, not because they think punishment is onerous and I don't want to get punished, but because they come to believe that it's wrong and 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 to think about why it's wrong to commit crimes. And so then they don't commit crimes in the future. Um, so all three of those kinds of reasons are broadly about consequences, trying to bring about some kind of desirable consequence, usually reducing crime, either by deterring or incapacitating or rehabilitating. But then the fourth reason, I think, I think a lot of people just have an intuition that in some cases, um, people who commit crimes just deserve to be punished. So, you know, maybe think about a case like Harvey Weinstein's case and consult your intuitions on that. And I think a lot of people would say, um, look, it's just appropriate that we hold people accountable. They deserve to be held accountable for what they've done. They deserve to be punished for what they've done. And then the thought is that punishment is the way of, of holding people accountable. Um, so that that reason is not so much about what the consequences are going to be of doing this. It's just about it's just it's just deserved. It's just appropriate to punish people who do bad things because they deserve it. Um, and I think those are broadly speaking the 
kind of four types of reasons you hear about why we punish. And I guess I should say, you know, it's worth noting those aren't mutually exclusive. I mean, you might think more than one of those um, is, is, you know, a function of punishment. But one thing to bear in mind is that there are conflicts between these. So it might be that the kind of punishment that could be an effective deterrent is different from the kind of punishment that could effectively rehabilitate, for example. So I think it's important also to keep in mind that these aims that people might give don't always fit together really comfortably. So I want to talk about this this conundrum, I guess, that that we're facing Mm -hmm. here in Michigan uh, right now because of what happened uh, with this clerk at our Supreme Court. And this this question of whether there's any such thing as enough. And and I, as you were talking, uh, I was thinking about some of the examples you were using and how we come up with the idea of whether something is enough or not. Um, Harvey Weinstein is a really interesting case. If he were to get out of prison, um, would we expect that that uh, he's paid his debt to society and would be able to to do all the things that that anyone else is allowed to do. Um, I, I I really do think this is a different space in people's minds in this country um, than the other spaces where we're talking about criminal justice reform. I think there is something about um, the idea that there is uh, a permanent. I guess uh, deterioration of your rights um, to, to 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 operate in society freely uh, if you commit crime. Why why do we have that trouble? And is some of that trouble that we're having justified? Are there some things that people do that we should uh, forever? I guess uh, consider um, consequences for that there that there should be some things that you cannot do because you did something else. Yeah, I think there's a lot there, but I, I think that, you know, as a starting thing, one thing to say is I think there, I think one thing that might, if we're asking kind of about people's psychology and why we, we I think you're right, we do tend to think, um, you know, we in some cases we tend to see criminals as the other, the they, and that we, you know, we're the good guys, we're the law abiding good guys and, and people who commit crimes are they, they're the bad guys. And, and when you when you start to see things that way and see that kind of distance, it can be easy to write people off. Um, and I think one of the things that one of the reasons that that is complicated is um, there's been a lot of interesting work done about why that's much too simplistic a, a distinction. I mean that the number of people in America who have criminal records, is really huge. I mean, by some estimates, you know, one third to one fourth of people in the country have criminal records. But even going beyond that, even if you don't have a criminal record, I think if most of us, if we consult our, you know, our our, our memories, our, our databanks of our memories, and think about have you ever in your life done anything for which you could have gotten arrested and gotten, a, you know, even if it's even if it was fairly small, that could have gotten you into the criminal justice system. But maybe you didn't there, you know, by the grace of God, or maybe you had the right skin color or for some other reason, you it, it didn't happen that you got into the criminal justice system. So I just think it's a, a blurry line that this sort of tendency that I think a lot of us have to think, well, you know, we the good guys, we're, we're doing it the right way. They the bad guys are this other and therefore, you know, we sort of can, can dismiss them um, um, because, you know, a lot of us could have, could, you know, actually a lot of us might have criminal records, but even those who don't could have. Um, And Mm -hmm. so I think we have to be careful of that kind of distinction. But the other reason I think it's tricky, and you alluded to this, is we we use the terms and we talk about when someone serves their term of punishment, they pay their debt. That's how they pay their debt. So you commit a crime, and that matters when you commit a crime. We think, many of us think that that makes it permissible for the state to treat you in ways that would not have otherwise been permissible to treat you because you committed that crime. But if that's the case, then the punishment also has to do some work in this equation. And we we talk about punishment as the way that you then pay your debt for that crime that you committed. But if we if we take that metaphor seriously, I mean, you think in other contexts, if you owed a debt and then you repaid that debt, 
there would be something wrong with, you know, with me continuing to say, well, now you've got to pay me more. Mm -hmm. You've got to continue to pay on that. Um, so I, I guess the worry I have is that we sometimes don't take seriously this notion of um, people who serve a term of punishment as having paid their debts. We give it lip service, but maybe we don't do much more than that with it. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking right now with Zachary Hoskins, uh, associate professor of philosophy at the University of Nottingham in England. He's written a lot about what it means to punish. We're talking about uh, the idea of permanent punishment, uh, the, the, the idea that perhaps some things that people do, uh, some crimes that people commit, are unforgivable in some ways. In, in other words, uh, there are things that forever they should not be able to do, even after they pay their debt to society in the form of a prison sentence. This is a question that has come up recently at the Michigan Supreme Court, where the newest justice, uh, Justice Kyra Harris Bolden, um, hired a clerk who had been incarcerated uh, for 14 years for a robbery in which he shot at uh, police officers. Uh, Pete Martell is his name. Uh, since he's gotten out of prison, he's really uh, made a new life for himself, uh, gone uh, and created the opportunity for himself to be a clerk at the Michigan Supreme Court. Uh, but Justice Richard Bernstein, who also sits on the court, uh, really objected to the idea that Martell could be a clerk there. Uh, and uh, the controversy has convinced Martell to resign. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. What do you think of this controversy at the Michigan Supreme Court? Do you think that Pete Martell should be able to be a clerk there after having committed uh, a violent crime, uh, a crime against police officers? Is that a disqualifier uh, for certain kinds of jobs? Uh, are there other things that you think people who've been in prison should be disqualified from doing? Uh, how do we assess those things? Uh, or do you think that, look, you do the crime, uh, you do the time, and then you should be free to live your life uh, the same way as uh, as everyone else in society. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can include you in the conversation that way. Sham on Twitter says, the goal of sending someone to prison should be to reform them and assist them in reentering society, not branding them an outcast forever. Uh, let's go to Karen in Macomb. Karen, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Hi. Uh, I have a lot of points to make here, so I will quickly do them. First of all, um, there are three convicted murderers licensed in the state of Michigan to practice law. Judge Mathis, he had a criminal past as a juvenile. Mm -hmm. He's a judge, and mm -hmm. in order to become a judge, you have to be in a licensed attorney first. Mm -hmm. The uh, State Bar of Michigan and the District Committee um, they're very elitist, and the Attorney Grievance Commission, they rarely punish the attorneys who do anything wrong. This whole godlike mentality has to stop. They are not God. They have not lived the lives of these graduates, these applicants, okay? What Mr. Martell did, no, it wasn't in his best interest that he committed the crime, but he paid his debt to society, you know, and that is remarkable. He went to law school because there are so many prisoners, once they get out, they just return to a life of crime. The panel members that review the applicants, they have no blemishes in their history. You know, they've lived a very privileged life. Mm. They don't understand what the applicants have went through. And they just nitpick and look for the slightest little thing to tear them to shreds. No other profession does that. Mm. And the last comment I want to yeah, make is look at all of the attorneys, the congressional attorneys who support Trump. They continually violated their duty to uphold and defend the Constitution. They broke the laws. They were never held accountable. Mm. This is horrible. Yeah, and, Karen, and for Karen I, I really appreciate the. I really appreciate the call and and the comments. Uh, I, I want to get our our guests back in here. This um, is is part of 
the fear of allowing people to live more freely and do things, um, is part of it about the fear of reoffending? Uh, because that is one of the things that, of course, uh, guides our criminal justice system too, right? Uh, we, we try to set up the structure so that people don't re-offend. But I wonder if this idea of punishing people after they're in prison is related to that. Or is it, is it more of what you were talking about in terms of um, this, this othering, that, 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 uh, this sort of cultural othering that, uh, that I think drives it? Yes, so I think it's a little bit of both. I think um, you can, there are certainly some cases where I think um, you can make a case that for um, trying to reduce risks to the public, you might say if someone has um, been convicted, for example, of, of child sex offenses, then you might say, well, look, even after that person has served their punishment and paid their debt, um, we still don't feel comfortable letting that person teach in elementary schools, for example. And you might, in that kind of case, you might cite um, risk to the, to the public. And, and we might just say, look, you know, that's just one of those things that even though you've served your punishment, we, we can't allow you to be in that sort of situation. Or if we said that Bernie Madoff couldn't, you know, you can, you can, you've paid your debt, but you can't get a job as a financial advisor right. anymore. We just, we can't have that risk. But on the other hand, I mean, there are other kinds of um, restrictive measures. For example, there are limits on getting um, federal student loans. There are, there are restrictions on getting welfare or food stamps. And I think there, there are restrictions on voting. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we really have to ask in those kinds of cases, what is the risk? What, you know, if we let someone who's paid their debt and has served their punishment, we let them vote or we let them be eligible to get food stamps or, or student loans, who's that putting at risk? And so I think in those kinds of cases, I think it is much more about some people just think, well, I don't care if you've served your punishment, you just don't deserve the same goods that other people have opportunities to, to access. And so, yeah, I think there's sort of different rationales sort of in, in play there. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with uh, Zachary Hoskins of the University of Nottingham in England uh, about uh, punishment and how we deal with punishment and think about it here in America. We'll also take more of your calls. Remember, we are also going to hear a little later from two people who spent time in prison and are trying to put their lives back together about just how difficult that can be. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking today about punishment and redemption, uh, the idea of whether people who commit crimes uh, can come back to society and live full lives, whether they should be allowed to, uh, and whether there are maybe some limitations uh, on those abilities or should be. Uh, we're talking with Zachary Hoskins, who's an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Nottingham in England. He's written a lot about what it means to punish. We also want to hear from you on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us, and we can include you that way. Let's go next to Diana in Madison Heights. Diana, welcome to the show. Um, my son is incarcerated. I, he'll be the first to tell you that he's guilty and he needs to be there. So that's good. I can't imagine anything worse than thinking he's innocent and there erroneously. But I think an important part of this conversation is, at least in Michigan, realizing that there's no such thing as the good time laws anymore. When there was legislation put through to reform sentencing guidelines, which there absolutely needs to be because you don't want that kind of thing subjective to judge by judge, day by day. Um, but when those when that went into effect, it got rid of the incentive to rehabilitate while in prison. So um, one thing that I've learned saying to people like my son's sentence is this long, 100 percent of the time people will say, well, maybe he'll get out early. 
uh, for good behavior or whatever. But that's not a thing in Michigan anymore. That got overturned. So from an inmate's perspective, I, I mean, obviously, you're talking about once they get out and, you know, get jobs and stuff like that. But while they're still in there, what is their incentive to get educated, to rehabilitate, to do better? Yeah, it's a great question, Diana. And of course, we wish uh, all the, the the good fortune to your son in in uh, in the future, you know, as he finishes his uh, his term and in prison and then comes out and hopefully to to a productive life but uh zachary uh, talk about that incentive and and the way that we i guess set people up for success or failure uh on the on the other side of prison sentences yeah i think you you mentioned earlier on Stephen, that the you know and, and i think it's in well in most states the the um prison systems are called departments of corrections and so it's it's built into the name the idea that prisons are supposed to be helping to to rehabilitate and reform and you know in practice this just often doesn't happen there aren't there's not the budget there for the kinds of programs that that might help with this and and i think too this comes back to the point i made earlier about um different reasons and potential uh, conflicts between the reasons so i think for for people who think that the reason, the primary reason for sending people to jail or to prison is to help to rehabilitate them, that's going to suggest that while they're in prison, there should be certain sorts of opportunities there, whether that's vocational training or other kinds of educational opportunities. But of course, if you think that um, the the primary reason for sending people to prison is is more retributive, then you might think that, and and you know, it's just appropriate that people who commit crimes. Uh, have this kind of hard, harsh response, um, then then you might sort of object to getting, you know, what might be considered benefits while you're in prison, such as educational opportunities or or vocational opportunities or things like that. So I think, uh, again, that there's sort of these different rationales that many people kind of might say they hold several of these, but there are, are conflicts with these. Um, and, and I think that can also be part of the problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Diana, again, really appreciate the call uh, and the the story and the questions. Let's go next to Charles in Ann Arbor. Charles, what's on your mind? Yes, uh, good Good morning. Hi. Um, what, what's on my mind is that we have a variety of different type of people incarcerated for different types of crimes. And I, I'm specifically concerned about the violent criminal. Uh, you know, we've got people in there for three strikes, uh, and 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 that's not really a crime against another person. Mm-hmm. But when you've got like the young boys and girls who are out shooting, and a stray bullet hits someone, and, or you've got the domestic violent person, uh, then then when they get out of prison, are they likely to commit another violent crime? I think as society, we're really afraid that the elderly are, are being victimized. And, and should we separate the type of crime hmm. that's been committed? Charles, it's a great it's a great question, and and it really gets at at what has been rolling through my mind during all of this, which is, you know, when you're ta- you know, as you point out, there are lots of different kinds of crimes, and violent crime is different from from other crimes, and it is more difficult, I think, for people to to get to the space where they think that someone who's committed a violent crime and comes out of prison uh, shouldn't have uh, limitations. Um, I really appreciate the call and, and you you raising that issue. Zachary, how, how do we think that through? How do we think through what Charles is, is, is raising here? Yeah, I, th- I think it's a valid point. And I think that it is reasonable and understandable that people are going to be thinking, well, but as, as Charles said, there are crimes and then there are crimes. And for certain kinds of crimes, for certain kinds of violent crimes, um, aren't we worried about letting people back into the community where they might commit those crimes again? And there, I think, again, this is this is sort of thinking about punishment as a way of incapacitating, you know, keep taking people out of the community if, um, if they might be dangerous. And I think there we, we really need to think about sentencing that is based on our best evidence about dangerousness. And so, for example, um, you know, folks who who do work on this stuff, sociologists and criminologists, there's a lot of good work done on, for for example, um, research suggests that about 
after about seven years from when you've um, been been uh, committed a crime, your dangerousness um, goes back down to roughly what the the population dangerousness would be generally. So in other words, after an amount of time passes, you're no longer really any more dangerous than anybody else to commit crimes. And and similarly, there there's a lot of evidence that people age out of criminality. So uh, it just tends to be the case that once people reach their mid 30s and 40s, um, they just don't commit crimes nearly as much. And so if we're if we're worried understandably about um, punishing in ways that ensure that people don't get back out in the community and commit crimes again, then you know one one thing is that the, our, our sentencing should be driven by the facts. Mm-hmm. It should be driven by our best evidence about when people actually are are dangerous. And then the other thing is our our response to people when they do get back out in the community is you know, there may be ways to allow people back out into the community, um, but with some restrictions. So we, we need to tailor those restrictions to make sure they're not a danger, but to let them have as much of their life back when they've served their term and in, in you know their term of punishment as, as we can, consistent with those public safety goals. Okay, uh, Zachary Hoskins, it was really great to have you here to help us uh, frame out this uh, conversation uh, in that philosophical context. Uh, thanks so much for being here with us yeah. on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Yeah. Great to talk with you. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about redemption. We're going to talk with two people who have worked to redeem their lives after being incarcerated. We're going to hear how difficult that can be given all these other barriers. We also want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. Give us a call. Let us know what you think about this idea of redemption and punishment. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Did you know it costs $650 per hour to operate WDET? That's a few dollars more per hour this year than last year. One big reason is that WDET now pays our interns. We're leveling the playing field for underrepresented and low-income applicants to learn journalism, podcasting, audio engineering, and more. I'm Diane Sanders, and I coordinate the WDET Internship Program. We're training the next generation of young people for the future news and information workforce. Financial help from General Motors, Verizon, the Polk Foundation, and the Clarence and Jack Himmel Foundation helped us jumpstart our internship program. You can help with a tax-deductible gift to WDET. Learn more at WDET.org interns. Today on 1019 WDET, I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you have decided to join us today. We have been talking about what it means to punish others and why we do it. We've been talking about our criminal justice system and the back end of that criminal justice system when people come out of prison, try to reestablish lives for themselves. How challenging that is, uh, how challenging we make it for them. Now we want to talk about redemption, though, and what it looks like in this country and if it's even possible. To do it, we have two really great guests. Ronnie Waters is a community engagement specialist with Safe and Just Michigan, a nonprofit that advocates for criminal justice reform. Ronnie, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for having me. And uh, sitting beside him here in the studio is Rick Speck. He is the leadership's Leadership Programs Coordinator for Just Leadership USA, an organization that amplifies the power of people directly impacted by incarceration. Rick is also a community engagement specialist with Safe and Just Michigan. Rick, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. And I should note that uh, both of our guests uh, are people who were 
in, incarcerated and uh, are trying to put their lives uh, back together. That's why we have them here today to kind of share some of the challenges that, uh, that we erect in their way. Uh, Ronnie, I, I want to start with you. Um, first, tell us what led you to, to prison, and then tell us what your life was like when you left and what challenges and struggles stood in the way of you trying to, to rebuild your life. Yeah. Um, first of all, I was a wayward kid, um, running the streets, completely out of control, no direction, no mentorship from anyone, no uh, father in the family, in the house, and none of that is an excuse, but I caught a first-degree murder case when I was 17 years old, um, went to prison for life without the possibility of the parole, stayed in prison until the United States Supreme Court made a decision that juveniles should at least be looked at to see if they had some type of redeeming quality about their life. And I finally got that hearing that the um, Supreme Court ordered back in 2012. I finally got that hearing in 2020 and I was released and came home after 40 plus years of prison and started trying to put a life together for myself. 40 years. 40 years. Yeah. I mean, that's it. It's every time I hear that, it just kind of goes through me to think about um, how much of your life um, you lost uh, because you were in prison. Tell us what that was like, though, coming home and the things that made it harder perhaps to, 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 to build your life back fully. Yeah, it was um, extremely hard. Um, I literally was living in a cave for over 40 years, you know, cut off from technology, cut off from um, all the things that are going on in the free world. You know, you, you get glimpses of, of the technology and different things, situations from the television, but it's nothing like when you step out <laughs> Out of that, out of that prison, and enter into a world that you know nothing about. Mm. A world that, when you left, um, I think the, the the biggest technology was three-way calling, you know, <laughs> and digital watches. And yeah. I came out where if you didn't understand how to manipulate a phone, you were lost. And fortunate for me that I had a really strong. Um, support system. I didn't have the same support system that most returning citizens have, and I was able to um, have a leg up because of my support system. And with all these caring and loving people in my life, it was still a struggle. And to be truthful, sometimes I still struggle, but I've surrounded myself with, with people who care about me and people who are invested in my, um, invested in my future. You want to see me do well. So, are there things that you've been told or uh, or that you've perceived that you can't do or that won't be allowed to do be- mm-hmm. because you were in prison? Um, a lot of my um, most of my energy and time has been um, invested in helping people who are returning like myself, or trying to do something to put shed light on those people that I left behind. I left behind a, a lot of good people, a lot of capable people, a lot of people who want the opportunity to show the world that they have some redeeming qualities about their life, show the world that they're more than the worst thing that they ever did in their life. So this is who I advocate for. So um, in, this, in that sphere, it's, it's more accepting than if I would uh, apply for a job at General Motors or more DET, mm-hmm. you know. So not not trying to um, slander you guys, but but <laughs> just well, Ronnie, so. we would be very happy to have you here. <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> okay, thank you. But uh, but I, yeah. I get your point, right? I mean, yeah. you're doing something that probably. Uh, doesn't have the same kind of barriers that right. that other jobs. I mean, would. a perceived barriers anyway. You know, I've, I'm fortunate to get a job with an organization that this is what they do: is advocate for for returning citizens, advocate for laws and policies to be changed to to 
help people like me. Right. So um appear to be re- received very um very well in those circles. However, um with the incident that's happened with the Supreme Court justice with mm-hmm. you know me thinking that he thought in a certain way. I was convinced that this man was completely on my side. You know, had conversations with him on at least two or three times with, over the summer and Justice fall. Bernstein? Justice Bernstein, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, and I was totally convinced that this was the right man for the job with the right attitude to take care of the job. You know, we never had discussions about cases or, or anything that he would rule on uh, in the in the future, mm-hmm. but you know, just generally talking to him led me to believe that he was one who believed in second chances, who believed in a person's ability to transform his life, and and recently I've I've been really struggling with how he could trick us like that, mm-hmm. you know how, and I'm wondering who else is smiling in my face but really don't believe in second chances like Bernstein. Wow. Yeah. Ronnie, that's, that's a really powerful, that's a really powerful experience to, 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 to be managing right now. Um, Rick, I want to bring you into the conversation and get you to tell us some of the same things, the things that led you to prison and what you found um, coming out and, and in the ability to, to put your life back together. Thank you, Stephen. Um, well, I think it's worth noting that, unfortunately, I spent multiple terms in prison. The last term was a 15-year sentence um, for a violent crime. And I think what was different for me when I came home the third time versus the first two times, one from the state and one from the federal system, was I had a similar support system, like like Ronnie had said. So there, there's always these inherent challenges behind housing, behind employment, behind just being welcome into the community as a community member. And so when I came home this last time, I really had this epiphany when I was on the inside and worked with a nonprofit to begin to train men like myself in critical thinking, effective communication, conflict resolution. And it lit a fire in me that this is what I wanted to do. And so when I came home, I began to work with youth so that they wouldn't make the same choices that I made as a youth. But what it boiled down to for me was I didn't come from, you know, I came from, from, Uh, parents that have been divorced since I was probably one. But I I think for me, when, when I came home this last time, I wanted to do better, be better. And I had people to help support me in that. But I had taken, and during that 15 years, I had healed. What drove my choices to abuse alcohol and drugs when I was younger was harm. I was traumatized. Um, I, I don't often share this, but as a young man, I was sexually assaulted and never shared that with anyone publicly mm-hmm. until maybe two years ago. Um, my wife was the first person I shared that with outside of my mother and father. But when I healed from those harms, I was able to look at life differently. I was able to experience life differently. And so when I came home, I wanted to do better. I'm a father. I have you know, two children, two stepchildren. I have grandchildren. Um, unfortunately I lost my, my oldest daughter to gun violence just a couple years ago. Oh no. So some folks would say, how did that affect me? Right. How did that affect the way I look at life? How do it, does it affect how I look at folks that had, had committed a homicide in, in years past? And the reality is, is during that most challenge, the absolute most challenging moment in my life when I was dealing with the loss of my daughter. It was men like Ronnie that had committed a homicide, had taken a life. When I was angry and wanted retribution, it was those men and women that came alongside me and said, Rick, you don't want this. This is, I promise you, this is not going to make you feel better. This is not going to make your pain go away. You do not want to do this. Mm. It was that community that I drew strength from, which you would think that's the last people I would want to talk to, right? Going through what I was going through, but that helped shape my thinking to say, yes, this is tragic. Yes, this shouldn't have happened. Does that person also deserve a chance at redemption? Yeah, we all do. 
But it took me a long time to come to that to realization. Yeah. Right? No, I can imagine. The, the part that disturbs me most, and to use Justice Bernstein's words, disgusts me the most, is that we're never going to be able to get past this. You know, a great thing happened in October in Atlanta, Georgia. They made returned citizens a protected class. Mm -hmm. The city council voted unanimously. Why are they a protected class? Because we know we're discriminated in housing. We know we're discriminated against in employment. If, if we weren't, then we wouldn't have all these check-the-box campaigns going all over the country. Sure. Right? I knew there was going to be challenges to what I did, I took my biggest negative and I turned it into my biggest positive and began to work in a space that I was intimately familiar with, the criminal legal system, for most of my adult life and, and part of my, my young life. That opportunity helped move me through. I'm a small business owner. You know, so when we talk about that protected class that happened yeah. in Atlanta, that happened because two women, two sisters that were formerly incarcerated that are entrepreneurs, just like myself, had to become an entrepreneur not because that was our first thought. It was out of necessity. Because no one would hire you. And then when they would hire me, it was at our, at, honestly, it, it was at a rate that I wasn't willing to do. Yeah. Right? I valued myself, my skills, my talents, my passions more than minimum wage. Just like them. Well, fast forward, COVID comes. We're not eligible for the same relief as business owners. Why? Because of our conviction. That conviction can have nothing to do with finances or anything else. But yet, as a class of people, we were completely taken out of that equation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the scary part is, is folks thought that was okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They How did. is that okay? Uh, you know, it's one of the, it's, it is the thing that drove us to this show uh, is, I don't understand that either. I don't get mm -hmm. why people don't believe in each other uh, a little more, right? Don't believe that, look, someone can make a terrible, terrible mistake, but become somebody different. You know, uh, they can and, heal and have the opportunity. Mm -hmm. I, I want to get another voice into the into the conversation here before we have to to end uh, the show. Uh, Daryl Woods uh, is someone I've known uh, mm -hmm. for a long time, uh, and and somebody who also has his own experience with this. Daryl, uh, welcome to the show. How you doing, my friend? Hey, man. Yeah, go ahead, man. Um, these are two pioneers who have transformed their lives and. Uh, for us to deal with the trauma of what happened on uh, last week is horrific. You're talking about, uh, you know, the segregation of South, you know, to segregate uh, returning citizens and, and treat us like second-class citizens is, is, is uh, disheartening. Uh, thousands of returning citizens voted for uh, Justice Bernstein. Justice Bernstein campaign inside mm -hmm. the Genesee County Jail and uh, talked to the prisoners because, because our organizations invited him there. Mm -hmm. And so there's it's a lot need to be done to rectify this situation. Uh, we deserve to live in the houses that we can pay for. We deserve to work and uh, uh, provide for our families just like any other taxpayer citizen. And so I thank you, Steve, uh, for always uh, being a leader. I uh, appreciate you big time, man. And I appreciate these brothers who are strong advocates and partners of mine uh, and being able to deal with the discrimination and the hatred yeah. that is uh, against uh, returning citizens. Yeah, Daryl, and, and, and I should note all of the work that you do now uh, to help returning citizens, but also all the work you did when you were incarcerated mm -hmm. to, to lift up the souls uh, of, of the people who, who have to live behind bars. Uh, thanks so much uh, for calling, uh, Daryl. Uh, but we've only got about a minute and a half left, but, but I, I want both uh, Ronnie and Rick to talk about what you would say to Justice Bernstein now? I mean, Ronnie, you said you've talked to him. What, what would you say to him if he, were, if he were sitting here in the studio with us? Um, it's depending on who I'm talking to. If I was talking to the same person that um, I met on the campaign trail, I would ask him different questions. But when, if I had to talk to the man who made those disgusting comments about um, Judge Bolden, I'm just trying to figure out what changed. Um, how all of a sudden that you could 
look a person in the eyes and and tell them how strongly you believe in things. And then you make those comments that you made about a really powerful young lady Mm -hmm. and how you can do that without even speaking to her, how you could do that without even trying to get an understanding with her. Those conversations that he put into the public should have been held behind closed doors. And I'm sure they could have came to at least agreement to not broadcast my business out there like that. A better understanding. A better understanding. So I want to ask him that, and then he comes out with a statement that um, he apologized I'm asking, well, what changed? Where? Right. How did you get religion all of a sudden? Right. You know, right. I, yeah. I want to know. There was a little pressure that. Like, yeah. we're, we're running out of time, but I want to give Rick a chance to, to 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 address it. We've got about a minute, left, Rick. I, I think what I would ask him, um, you know, Pete Martell is a, is a good friend of mine. Somebody that came into the prison, worked with me when I was there, and and was a beacon of hope and light because of what he represented behind the work that he was doing, right? The efforts that he was putting in, the change that he was making. The one thing I really, outside of his conviction, the only thing he stated is that conviction disqualifies him. To me, how? How are you disqualified? He's the most qualified, in my opinion. The only resignation that should be sought is Justice Bernstein's, in my opinion. P. Martell is a hero of mine. Absolutely. Okay. Rick Speck and Ronnie Waters, it's really great to have both of you here to talk about this. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit today. Thank you for having us, Thank you. That is going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about recreational marijuana and its effect here in the city of Detroit. We'll talk again then.